Scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring the light, the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You may be seated. Thanks, Hugo. And as you're being seated, would you join me in praying? Lord God, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer, through Christ, amen. Well, next week is our last week in 1 Corinthians before we take a break. Uh, for four weeks for, for Advent. And I hope you've seen so far that really this first section of 1 Corinthians, if you've been tracking with us, if you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our sermons thus far on our podcast. I hope you've been tracking with us so far that, that Paul's really unpacking one problem. And, and slowly but surely, if the Corinthians are a tree, he's been getting to the root of that problem. The root of this problem. What, what is that root? I think the problem at the root of the Corinthian tree is that they had forgotten who they were. It's a question of identity. They've been acting not only like Corinthians, rather only like Corinthians, and not like Christians. They've been thinking like mere humans and not like the spirit people that they are. And because of this, because of this, is this fundamental identity mistake They've come to despise Paul and despise his message. This is the root of the Corinthian problem. And so this morning, Paul's going for the root. He's going to challenge the Corinthians on the very level of their identity. And he's going to use himself and the other apostles as an example. And he's going to model for us today what it means to have Jesus come and transform your very sense of self. His vision of self, we'll find, is very different than the world's, both their world and ours. Uh, there's a little book called The, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And I actually, a member of our church donated a bunch of copies of this like 40-page book. It's up here on the speaker. You don't have to run up there and grab it right now, but if you want to follow in the gathering, go and get one. And in that book, author and pastor Tim Keller, he notes that there are typically, and these are big generalizations, there are typically two ways that we can think about the self, that we can think about the self, and and what the problem with the self is. And he begins by identifying what he calls sort of the traditional culture view on the problem of self. He says this, Up until the 20th century, traditional cultures, and this is still true of most of the cultures in the world, They always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all evil in the world. What is the reason for most of the crime and violence in the world? Why are people abused? Why are people cruel? Why do people do bad things? Traditionally, the answer was hubris. It was pride. 
it's too high a view of the, the self. And so traditional culture would say that the problem with the Corinthian church is that they need to be brought down a peg, taken down a, a, a notch. The Corinthian church, they would say, needs to be reminded of how bad they are, how little they are. That's one approach. And if that approach sounds off to you, a bit strange to you, it's likely because you don't inhabit a traditional culture, at least for most of us. Instead, in our modern Western culture, we believe, don't we, that the problem isn't too high a view of the self, it's what? Too, too, too low a view of, of the self, right? Keller continues to write this, our belief today, and it is deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem and because they have too low a view of themselves. And so modern Western culture says the problem's simple. The Corinthians just need to be encouraged, built up, said nice things about them. They need to feel better about themselves. And we have here undoubtedly two very different approaches to attacking the root of the Corinthian problem. And undoubtedly, Paul's answer is going to give us sort of a nod to both of these things. But what Paul's going to say is that neither one of these approaches gives us the full answer this morning. What they need, Paul will say, is a transformed sense of self. So I want to show you this. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. If you don't have a Bible at all, we have Bibles at the back for you. They're our gift to you. Take one, keep one. You'll need it to walk with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 says this. This is how one should regard us, Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So for the second time in our letter, Paul refers to himself as a, a servant, and we've seen so far, haven't we, that for a leader, a rhetorician, a person of power, to take on the title of servant in Corinth was not a good move. It's not how you progress or advance. You don't, you don't become a, a servant that's below, that's beneath. But this time, though, as Paul uses the word servant in 1 Corinthians 4, he's using a different word than he used in chapter 3. See, the word for servant used here is often in connection with someone who is executing a task on behalf of a master or lord. In the Gospels, when we find this word, we usually encounter it in reference to um, the, the officers of the Jewish courts or, or those who are assistants to rulers or even guards. These are men under uh, authority. And it's paired here with steward. A steward who really simply has been entrusted with something by their master. Typically, this word is used in reference to somebody who's serving in a household, right? They've been entrusted something with something of their masters. So the picture is clear. Paul is a man under authority. He's a man under authority who has been entrusted to steward something that is not his, that is his master's. This is Paul's fundamental identity. If you were to go to the bedrock of who Paul believed he was, this is who he believed he was. Yes, a beloved son, but a beloved son who serves his master through stewarding his message. This is who Paul thinks he is. 
And from this identity, we'll see this morning, comes two things. Both great responsibility, it's like Spider-Man, but also great power. Both great responsibility and great power. I want us to see this. These are our two points this morning. We can put them both on the screen. We're going to look at faithfulness. That's our responsibility as servants. And freedom. That's our great reward as servants. Two simple points. Faithfulness and freedom. And we're going to see how servants are required to be faithful and how in turn they find tremendous, liberating freedom. But before we go further, there's a big, fat assumption in our text. It's glaring. It's one that Paul makes because he's writing to Christians. But I'll be honest, I, I don't know all of you this morning. Most of you, but not all of you. See, Paul will say, if you want to be faithful, if you want freedom, you need a transformed sense of self. But that transformed sense of self comes only by surrendering to King Jesus. That's the assumption here. Paul's giving us a window into the life of someone who has trusted in Christ and Christ alone. So before we examine the life, let me just first ask, and I want to assume this, is that true of you this morning? Have you trusted in Christ? Is he your king? And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, first off, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But secondly, let me clear something up for us. There is this, this fundamental misunderstanding of freedom in our day and age. We love freedom, don't we? When we go to protests, when we go to rallies, our signs, they, they, they undoubtedly have freedom somewhere on them. We love freedom. But as a culture, as a society, and I've talked about this before, we have defined freedom as freedom from, right? Freedom from. Freedom from other people telling me what to do, right? That's freedom. Freedom from the power structures of our day and age. That's freedom. Or freedom from other people's expectations. That, that's freedom. The problem is this. True freedom acknowledges that it is impossible to be freed from everything. From everyone. Our lives, whether you realize it or not this morning, Christ City, are always lived in service to someone or some ideology, some way of thinking. So contemporary freedom seekers are either A, blind to their true master, or B, perpetually frustrated. Now, freedom is not a question of freedom from, but as the Bible defines it, true freedom is freedom to. True freedom is freedom to serve the one who does not disappoint. True freedom is freedom to serve the one who loves us and cares about us and knows us. True freedom is found in serving the one true king, Jesus. And so the first assumption I don't want to gloss over this morning that Paul makes in our text is that you've trusted in Christ. And is that true of you this morning, Christ City? Have you trusted in Christ as your king? Once we've established that, if we can, I want to begin by examining what faithfulness looks like as his servants. So look at verse 2 of chapter 4 with me. This is point number 1 faithfulness. 
Paul writes there, and we read together. Moreover, we're continuing on. It is required of servants, it is required of, sorry, stewards, that they be found faithful. What does it mean for us to be a faithful servant of Christ? To be a faithful steward? I want to begin by looking at what it meant for Paul in Corinth. I think it's important. Remember, the Corinthians, they required many things of Paul, right? Many things of him if he was to find honor and status in their city. The Corinthians required Paul to have eloquent speech. The Corinthians required Paul to come with something more than the frankly embarrassing message of a crucified Messiah. The Corinthians required Paul to play the game. The Corinthians had a lot of requirements for Paul. What are your requirements for people in ministry? Paul didn't uh, play by this game. He didn't play by these rules. Why is that? Because Paul knew, as he said here, what God required of him. And what was that? That he should proclaim among the Corinthians and the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Romans nothing else than the very mysteries of God. What are those? Really simply, the mysteries of God Paul is talking about here, or are talking about here, is simply this gospel message that Paul has been proclaiming all along. So imagine this with me, Christ City. The mysteries of God are, are, are this message of salvation that was once hidden and dimly perceived by the law and the prophets. It's now been clearly revealed to us in Christ Jesus. It's this message that salvation is not and cannot be through perfect obedience to the law or worldly notions of power, but only through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. It's this message that the wholeness and purpose that the Greek philosophers were sort of groping at in the dark, that the answer is not an idea or a philosophical construct, but a person. It's Jesus. This is the mystery of God. And faithfulness for Paul and for us is measured on the basis of whether or not we stick to the same age-old script, the same timeless gospel message proclaimed. I saw this, this, this quote this week of a pastor saying, listen, I'm teaching nothing new. I'm an ambassador of your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. And that's all I am. I'm an ambassador of your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Nothing new. This is what is required of God's servant. Faithfulness to this message. See, Paul's not giving, we should be clear here, this exhaustive treatment of ministry or even what our ministry should be. We know that Paul traveled and prayed and counseled people and he, he raised funds for, for, for struggling churches. No, Paul's vision for Christian leadership is not simply or only proclaiming. But rather, everything Paul did, his counseling, his praying, the, the, the church planting, the laboring, it was all in service of this one message. And how could it not be? As a steward, he did not have any other message to bring. I want us to hear that. He did not have any other message to bring. A few weeks ago, uh, I called my doctor because you don't go to the doctor anymore, apparently. You just call them, and they tell you what's wrong with you, and it's, it's easy for me. As so I called my doctor, I told him what was wrong with me. I'll spare you the details. 
And uh, he said, no problem. Um, like, here's a prescription. I'll send it to the pharmacist. And so I went, or rather my wife went, I'll be honest, uh, to the pharmacist. And there the pharmacist gave uh, my wife the medicine prescribed by my doctor. Now, without wanting to offend any pharmacists in this room, because I know we have some, at that moment, when my wife is meeting with the pharmacist, it's not time for the pharmacist to go off script, right? To start improvising, right? Melvin, am I right here? It's no improvising at that point, right? I don't, we can talk later. It's not like, hey, you know, here you go, you know, and like maybe a dash of this and maybe some of this. It's not time for them to improvise at that point. What do they need to do? Fill the script, right? Give the medicine the doctor has prescribed. It's not the role of the pharmacist to prescribe supposed improvements, to, to innovate, to put a spin on things. You and I are pharmacists, not doctors. Do, do you see that, Christ City? I read an article this week entitled, How to Spot a Personality Cult. And the first sign of a personality cult listed was this. Mark Hampton, he writes, If a personality is bigger than Jesus, so too is the personality's message. As personalities rise and gain influence, they become the unquestionable arbiters of truth, even to the point that they can defy a command of Jesus. I think this is a profound warning sign for our day and age. As the influence of, of leaders and Christian leaders grows, we often forget our place. We forget that we are pharmacists and not doctors. We are servants, not masters. We are stewards, not innovators. And as servants and stewards, we are to be found faithful. As an aside, let me just ask you, servant, steward of Christ, when's the last time you shared this gospel message? When's the last time you counseled from the perspective of this gospel message? Did acts of justice with this accompanying gospel message Yes, we're only servants and stewards, but we're servants and stewards. Do you see that, Christ City? See, here's the beauty of being found faithful. And it's almost too good to imagine. When we faithfully and lovingly speak the good news to those that we care about, 1 Corinthians teaches us that we become God's very own faithful presence to these people. And again, I know you've memorized all of 1 Corinthians, and so this will be old hat for you. But do you remember all the way back, the very first week, we heard Paul write this. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, our faithfulness now is the result of God's faithfulness to us. He is faithful first. And having received now his faithfulness then, as seen in his son Jesus, our faithful gospel-proclaiming presence in people's lives is intended, or rather is not intended, to make them think, man, what a good guy Jake is. Oh, what a great 
person they are. No. It's ultimately intended to bring people to a point where they say, man, what a faithful God he is. So let me lift your gazes this morning. If you, and think about this, if you have recently had a friend pray for you and pray the hope of the gospel over you, if you have been graciously challenged by the gospel in your way of thinking or in something you're doing by a friend, or if you just had somebody from this church sit with you and, and cry with you recently, it is good and right for you to give thanks to God for those brothers and sisters. It's good and right. Don't misunderstand me. But don't stop there. Let these brothers and sisters in Christ move you to worshiping the God who is faithful. The God who cares about you and knows you and loves you. The one who empowers and enlivens and commissions his faithful servants. Here's the responsibility. God requires faithfulness of his servants and his stewards. That's the responsibility. And, and here's the good news that comes out of that responsibility this morning. When God's servants are faithful, they experience a freedom like nothing else. Like nothing else. Let's read the rest of our passage together. Look at verse 3 with me. We're going to read to verse 5. Paul continues to say this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I, don't, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's stop there. Here's what I want us to see. Paul's freedom as a servant and as a steward is rooted in sort of two fundamental realities. The first is that Christ is his Lord, and the second is that Christ is his judge. His freedom is based on two things, two pillars, as it were. Christ is his Lord, and Christ is his judge. So first, Christ is Paul's Lord. We, we can almost imagine in these verses that all of Corinth has sort of come out to judge Paul, to assess him, to assess his ministry. They've established their tribunal, their, their little court. In fact, that word that we find there, that, that human court, is, is meant to be a little bit degrading, like, like a puny little human court. They've established their puny little human court, and they're attempting to put Paul on trial. And in one way, it makes sense. Paul just said, I think it was last week, do you remember? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, right? And you can almost imagine the Corinthians saying, well, Paul, if you're mine, then I'll judge you because you're mine. I'm going to judge you. But Paul this morning is clarifying. He's saying to the Corinthians, no, I'm yours as a servant of Christ. Yes, I'm among you as a steward, as a servant. Indeed, my whole ministry is for your benefit. But I've come here on behalf of someone else. So Paul says 
Because you're not my master, you're not my Lord, you don't stand over me in judgment. And all of us Western individualists say, yes! Woo! They're not the boss of you, Paul. You tell them, right? Assert yourself. You do you, Paul. We're excited about Paul's response here, are we not? Maybe we're less excited about what comes. See, he takes it one step further. And it should make us feel uncomfortable because this is entirely against the grain of our culture. Paul says this. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Hold on a second, Paul. You're saying that your judgment of yourself is not infallible truth? I don't like that. What, what, what did Shakespeare write in Hamlet? To thine own self be true? Is that not the spirit of our age? To thine own self be true? No, Paul says. Corinthians, your opinion about me and my ministry doesn't matter. And what's more, frankly, my opinion about my ministry doesn't matter either. Because neither you nor me are Lord of my life. Christ is. Christ is. He continues to say this, for I am not aware of anything against myself. He's saying, listen, I think I have a clean conscience. But then he says this, right? But I am not thereby acquitted. Even though I have a clear, clean conscience, even, even though you know, I can't think of anything I've done wrong, it doesn't mean I'm fine. I'm not my own judge. Paul's life is so entrusted into the hands of Christ that even if he was to have this clear and clean conscience, it doesn't mean he's fine before his master. It's not the Corinthians' call. It's not his call. It's not even his conscience's call. It's Christ's call. Do you see that? Paul knows that if his Lord is Christ, then his judge is ultimately Christ. We keep reading. It is the Lord who judges me. You know, as an aside, sometimes you see those tattoos, right? Like, only God can judge me. You guys seen those tattoos? I mean, it's just me. Right? And it's a good scriptural principle. Like, God will be the one who judges us. Sometimes I wonder if people, like, really understand. Like, it's a bit terrifying thing to tattoo on your body, but okay. It's an aside. And some of you will only remember that point. Great. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. As we saw last week, there is coming a day. This day, Paul says. This day when Christ returns and will lay all things bare. All motives, all lusts of the heart, all impure desires will be exposed on this day. We don't know when that day is, but the day is coming, Paul says, when all these things will be exposed. The, the hidden things that we think no one sees. On that day, we will learn that God saw all those things all along. It's a terrifying notion. If we really stop and consider this, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Who can stand on that day? And if you're like me, I don't think you've thought about it. The answer is none of us. 
at least not on our own. Paul's confidence in the day of judgment was not on the basis of public opinion or on the basis of his own clear conscience. It was on the basis of his forgiveness of sin in Christ. It was because Christ was not only his Lord and Master, but also his Savior. In a great companion sort of chapter to these verses, Paul writes in Romans 8 these words. I want us to hear these. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There is no charge brought against Paul that could be brought by him by the Corinthians or himself or even the very devil that will stick on the final day. Why? Because Christ Jesus died for us. More than that was raised for us. More than that is seated at the right hand of God for us. More than that is indeed interceding for us, the church, this very second This reality of Paul's justification, his declared righteous, his declared freedom, was joy to him, pure freedom to him. And it's freedom to us as well today. If you want to close your eyes for a moment, I'll assume you're not sleeping. Just think about this. There is no part of your life right now that is hidden from our Heavenly Father. He knows it all, all of it. Even that thing that is buried so deep, you've shared it with no one. Our Father knows all of us. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. It's a terrifying thought. And on the day, it will all be revealed. But on that day, if we're found clothed in the Son's righteousness, clothed in the Son's obedience, putting our faith in Him, the Father will still say to us, come, I've prepared a place for you. It has been said that our greatest fear is that we would be fully known. Because if anyone knew us fully, like really, really knew us, surely we'd be rejected, right? If you knew what I thought about and my desires and my motives, Surely you would reject me is all of our thoughts. But here's the hope of the gospel. And it's no wonder Paul wanted to be a steward of this message because it's glorious. God knows us fully, but in his son Jesus, he accepts us fully. Do you see that? God knows us fully. But if we put our faith in his son Jesus, turn from our sin and believe in him, he accepts us fully. We are fully known in him and yet fully, without reservation, accepted. This is the kind of message that changes the world. Not just us, but the world. And that, friends, that, not, not the imposters advertising affairs, and more money, and more vacations, and a new lifestyle. That, not those things, that is true freedom. 
That is true freedom. See, brothers and sisters, friends, let's flesh this out a bit more. You have been freed this morning from the opinions of others. Think about that. When they say nice things to you, you are freed from the sin of pride and addiction to their praise. You're freed from that in Christ. And when they reject you, when they hate you, you are freed from the despair that comes from that. You are freed from the opinions of others, from, from mere human courts. Both the pride and the despair, you, you're freed. Brothers and sisters, you've also been freed from your own internal judge. See, for some of us, our internal judge is, is ruthlessly demanding. Ruthlessly demanding. Calls us all sorts of names when we fail. He asks for perfection. And when the internal judge does not receive it, down comes the gavel. For others of you, your internal judge has covered their ears. And they're really a terrible judge. They're actually no judge at all. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing immoral. Nothing. The hope of the gospel is that both external judges and internal judges are no judges at all. This should change our life if we truly believe this. This freedom is yes for us, but let's keep on going. It's also to be extended to others. It would be a mistake for us this morning to only see ourselves in Paul and not in Corinth. We're like Paul, right? Not Corinth, but we're Paul people. And as people who are actually probably more like Corinth than Paul, we need to see how we are also freed from judging others. See, there's an interesting question that arises from the, at this point, right? Is Paul saying that we should not judge at all? Because again, Jake, I've read ahead in 1 Corinthians, and I know that in chapter 5, all be commanded to judge those inside the church. Again, I read even further, and in chapter 6, we'll hear that it's good for us to judge disputes within the church. And so, Jake, what's happening here? How do you explain these things? I want to say three things, because I'm a pastor and everything is three. First, we're free from judging other Christians based on worldly standards, worldly ways of thinking. We're free from judging based on worldly standards. The, the judgment that has been applied to Paul here has nothing to do with his faithfulness and everything to do with Corinthian preference. I'm just going to say that again. The judgment that has been applied to Paul here has nothing to do with his faithfulness and everything to do with Corinthian preference. Everything to do with preference. In Christ, we're freed from judging others based on worldly standards of what's powerful and wise, what's good and right and true. In Christ, we no longer need to hold people to impossible standards that don't come from Jesus, but our flesh. Second thing. So we're freed from judging other Christians based on worldly standards. Second thing, and this is very important. We're freed from judging motives. There is this mutual judging 
That is to be done among spirit people. In love. Key point. In love. But this judging is always done on the basis of actions. Where we so often get into trouble is when we say things like this. I know why she did that to me. Oh, I know why she did that to me. And I know why he said that to me. And the answer is you don't. Do you know why? Because you're not God. You see this horizontally. God sees this, everything. Even relationally, we get into trouble all the time when we start judging motives. Oh, I know why they're not here today. Oh, I know why. Mm -hmm. We don't have a window into the hearts of people like God does. So don't pretend you're God. If you're married, if you're married, this is a marriage tip for us. Don't judge motives. You don't know. So let me say this to you then. You are freed from obsessing over what so-and-so was really getting at with that comment, that gesture, that whatever. We're freed from judging motives. It's a beautiful freedom that comes here. Do you see Christ City? Third thing, and this is really the other side of the coin from the first thing. Not only are Christians freed from judging other Christians based on worldly standards, but Christians are freed from judging the world by Christian standards. Christians are freed from judging the world by our standards. Paul will say in the very next chapter, in January, we'll, we'll read this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So is there terrible evil outside the church? Yes. Should it break our hearts? Yes. Should it cause us to eagerly, eagerly share the good news with outsiders? Yes. But do we, you and me, stand in judgment over the world? No. That's not our role. That's not my role. That's not your role. God judges those outside. Our job is to bring them with his help inside. It is only to transform self in Christ where we find this freedom. A freedom that both frees us from being the judged and being the judge. It's the freedom that Keller writes about of self-forgetfulness. And it comes not by thinking less of ourselves, nor by thinking more of ourselves, but as C.S. Lewis says, by thinking of ourselves less. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The reality is, not only are you no longer the judge, and not only are we no longer in the judgment seat, but in Christ, friends, we are no longer in the courtroom at all. We're not there at all. See, for most of us, we wake up, and I'll end with this, we wake up every morning and we put on an identity. We put on an identity, like clothes, we, we, we put it on. And we hope against hope that today, this identity will be enough. That it will be enough. We go into the courtroom of public opinion, at school, at work, at home, hoping it's enough. And some days it is, and some days it's not. But Keller writes that Paul's found the secret. 
that the trial is over for him. He is out of the courtroom. It is gone. It is over because the ultimate verdict is in. What is that verdict? What is that verdict? Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is our greatest hope. This is our greatest joy. This is our freedom. Would we treasure it? Let's pray. Father, we confess that this truth is so grand and so unbelievable that we struggle to believe it. In fact, we have an internal voice right now whispering to us, it's not true. And so we rebuke the lie of the enemy in Jesus Christ's name. And we declare the hope of your gospel over your church, that all those who've trusted in Christ are indeed made new in Christ, are indeed new creations in Christ. And we pray that blessing over the church now in Jesus' name, that we would believe it, that we would know it, that we'd be found faithful as your servants and stewards, but that we would enjoy the reality for which you sent your son to accomplish. That's good news. Help us to believe it. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at Jake at Christ City Church. Thank you.